Welcome to episode 414 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature a grand conversation with book critic, writer, professor, among other things, David Eulin. We discuss the art of criticism, the lost art of reading, being a book critic at the LA Times, reading as a form of resistance. We also discuss a bit about meeting Lawrence Ferlinghetti and how the great beat poet encouraged literary community. And we discuss greater access for more folks to publish their work. A grand conversation with David Eulin this week. We have an EWSA titled Stardust, and our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis, shares an original radio play titled The Shut-In's Bitter Cousin Mary Stops By. We have a poem called Place. All of this will be imbued, infused with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 414 of Troubadours and Tours. Paperback rises. 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 Pa
stardust. There are a pair of sneakers on my back brown deck that are tan with an orange stripe. A worker man brought them together with his hand and put them next to one another on top of the base cast iron umbrella stand, the left one slightly tilted to the center of the circumference within which the two are secure and waiting to be worn again, I suppose. I mean, what other purpose might they have in my perception? Anthropomorphism is sort of an unintentional hobby. I look outside from the inside on a bright day, hoping from an upside. On a dark day, influenced by the downside, everything revolving around me. How within this narrow yet creative quagmire can one be free? Excuse me while I kiss the sky, fluttering like a butterfly, stung like a bee. Oh, it had to be me, wonderful me. Those sneakers have been on the deck since autumn, through a long snowy winter, askew and buried, untethered and misconstrued as lost, forgotten forever. Until one sun-filled spring day, a worker man replacing the house's siding brought them back together again, the left foot on the left and the right foot on the right, placed ever so poignantly along the nucleus of the cast-iron circle that soon will hold steady again a big striped umbrella, allowing one and more to sit under it, protected from the white, strong light projecting us home from way out there in the Milky Way. And my heart lifts a bit, and my spirit with it sings hip, hip, hooray, at least for a few moments today.
David Ulin, is that you? It is me, yes. Is Lawrence? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Thank you so much for being on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, before we get started, let's uh, share a little background information with the listeners. Okay. David L. Ulin is Associate Professor of the Practice of English at the University of Southern California. He is the author or editor of a dozen books, including Sidewalking, Coming to Terms with Los Angeles, which was shortlisted for the Penn Diamondstein Spielvogel Award for the Art of the Essay, and Writing Los Angeles, a literary anthology, which won a California Book Award, as well as The Lost Art of Reading, Books and Resistance in a Troubled Time. The former book editor and book critic of the Los Angeles Times he has also written for The Atlantic Monthly, Harper's, The New Yorker, The Nation, The New York Times, Book Forum, The Paris Review, Columbia Journalism Review, and National Public Radio's All Things Considered. David has received fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, Black Mountain Institute, and the Lennon Foundation. Troubadours and Rock on Tours is very happy to have on the program David Yulin. Again, thank you. Thank you for taking the time out, Professor. Um, oh, yeah, my pleasure. I, uh, I want to help uh, people understand, know how they might become a, a book critic and an editor. How did, how did uh, you get to where you are? What did you, how did you end up where you are today? Uh, it was a <clears throat> combination of, I think, serendipity, a little bit of intention, stubbornness, and an inability to do anything else. I always wanted to be a writer, as, even as a young kid. Um, once I learned or realized that books were something that got made in the world, that they didn't just sort of magically exist, that that, was, that, that could be your job to kind of make books, um, I always wanted, I wanted to do that. I was a fairly, very, I shouldn't say fairly, I was a very avid reader from, uh, from the age of about five or six, and books were kind of center to my world. And so the idea of being able to participate in that somehow, that conversation, I don't think I would have framed it that way as a little kid, but that conversation to be kind of on the shelf with uh, the, the writers who um, were kind of opening up the world to me 
seemed like the you know the it seemed like the obvious thing that the only thing I really really wanted to do I had no idea that it was difficult or that it was something that um, many people didn't do and so I became you know first a kind of baby writer in, in junior high and high school writing stories and things like that and then um, in college I was an English major I wrote a novel as a senior thesis not a particularly good novel but it did teach me a lot of things about kind of what to do and what not to do in terms of, of and also just sort of the commitment required. Um, to write a book. And then um, when I got out of college, I just, um, I, I, I was raised in New York. I went back to New York. I got a job um, in a bookstore and, um, you know, met some other writers. And at one point, one of them said to me, you know, you, I know you want to get published. You, you know, you read a lot, you're an English major, you know how to, you know, you know how to critique work. You should try writing book reviews. Um, this was in the 1980s when that was actually um, a viable, low-end, but viable <laughs> profession. <laughs> and so I wrote a couple of sample book reviews and sent them out and um, and ended up first getting a, um, an, a, an unpaid job with a very small arts monthly um, in New York where I kind of put together the book coverage. And what I discovered, much to my surprise, because I'd never had any experience with it, was that I really liked the immediacy of journalism and kind of public criticism. Um, you know, I liked, the, I liked that conversational aspect. I was thinking more consciously about it at that point. And I, I liked the idea that I was commenting on stuff as it was coming out and readers were reading it. We were a part of a kind of a heightened version of the conversation I, would have, I was having with my friends anyway as, as new books we wanted to read came out. The immediacy of it and also in some way the disposability of it because um, – you know, because in, in the, the so-called literary projects, and I just want to interject here to say that I don't make that distinction anymore at this point, but when I was in my 20s, I did, were the literary projects, the novel I was working on was so, you know, long-term that there was something really vivid to me about the immediacy of, of, of writing a review and putting it out into the world and having it come and go really quickly. It took the pressure off in a certain sense which I was then able to kind of transfer over to, um, to my other writing. And then it's a long sort of twisted road of sort of serendipity and various opportunities and things like that. Um, but a lot of it has to do with the fact that I never, um, I don't know, it wasn't that I didn't take no for an answer, but it never occurred. There was nothing else for me to do. I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I, I only know how to do this. <laughs> I'm fairly unskilled in virtually every other aspect of my life. So in a lot of ways, too, it was kind of um, it was a matter of necessity. Yeah, necessity for sure. But I mean, you're, you're, you, you are definitely talented. It doesn't just perseverance is important. But of course, you're being humble. You, you have a talent for certain. Um, and I want to commend that. But I, I want to ask you, how, how do you respond to people that often say, you know, oh, critics, uh, the, you were a critic for, for the, uh, you, you've done writing uh, uh, work uh, as a critic for the Los Angeles Times. When people say, oh, critics are the worst, how do you respond to that? <laughs> Sometimes they're right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it's, it depends on your approach to criticism. I mean, I think critics... There are there are good and bad critics out there, and um, and sometimes and you know, and, and I think we can define them in a variety of, diff of different ways. For me, the primary thing was a critic with a with a with a grudge, or a critic with a chip on their shoulder, or a particular kind of axe to grind. I don't want to just say any axe because I think all well, all good critics are have a kind of critical axe or an aesthetic axe to grind or an aesthetic point of view that they are writing from and that they are reading from. Uh, and, and I know that that's true in other <clears throat> in other arts as well. And I think that that aesthetic sensibility or that sense of, for want of a better phrase, that sense of taste, I don't mean it in 
sense in, in like a high or low taste, but what their taste is, is really important because it, it, it's necessary for us to understand that criticism is subjective, just like all arts are. And there is no objective standard of, of uh, or at least for my mind, there is no objective standard of what makes a book good or, or makes a book not good. It really has to do with how that book hits you as a reader first and then as a, as a critic as you're thinking your way through it. So I think it's, you know, so for me, um, the, the, the idea, though, was that um, I think critics, like all writers, need to be um, – outward looking you're writing your own take on a book you're writing your own your own sort of response to it you have to be honest in the first place because your responsibility is to the work that you're doing and also to your readers so if the book isn't working for you you have to know how to say that but i think the what the the the, the for me the issue was always i never wanted to relish not um relish writing a negative review i never you know i, I wrote them um, I still do when when they're called for, when I feel they're called for, when I have that response to a book. But I never wanted to go in with that agenda. I was I've always been a critic um, who you know approaches books because I want to read them, and then if it turns out that I'm disappointed by the book or the book has problems, then I, I kind of write out of that sense of sort of um, disappointment. I think at one point I called it disappointed love, um, and so I think that that sense of empathy for the for the for the for the writer and for the and for the work is necessary. If you're if you're just a literary hitman, that's a whole other story. And I never liked those kind of reviews. Reading them, I I tried never to write those kind of reviews. As an editor, I went out of my way never to assign or publish those kind of reviews because I think that they diminish the conversation rather than open up the conversation. And for me, the critic's prime role is to be a, a, a kind of, a, I don't want to say a facilitator of the conversation, but to participate in a three-part conversation between the work under review and the critic as, and their sensibility and then the reader who's, who's reading that review. I think it's a really complicated dynamic and the, the, the critics I most respect are aware of that um, in their writing. Wonderfully put. Uh, thank you for that insight. And, you know, I look at uh, your title as professor at USC, and I, I want to ask you about that, too. Uh, you're a professor of the practice of English. Uh, what, what exactly does that mean? It means that basically I got hired because of my professional experience, not because of my um, academic standing. I don't have um, I don't have a graduate degree. I, I left. I went I got a B.A., and then went, um, as I said, when I went up back to New York to um, after I got out of college, work. Um, and so there's a category of uh, there's a category of professor who, they, you know, particularly in, in uh, English department. Well, in our case, because the English department also has a strong creative writing focus, writers who, because of their professional practice, um, are hired to come and and, um, and talk to students with that sort of as their as their standard of expertise. So that's the that's the category. That's that's my category. I like that. I like I that very much. I kind of love it because I, yeah. I, I I always I like the idea of practice of artistic practice, and I do think of it that way. And I like the idea of practitioner. I think that's you know that's um, that's that's a great thing to be. Oh, definitely, definitely. Thank you, thank you for clarifying. Uh, I thought it was a great turn of phrase in a way for the practice of English. So I wanted to I wanted to get some mm -hmm. more uh, information. Now, yeah. your your book on the lost art of reading. I mentioned it when we were sharing a little bit about uh, your 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 uh, background. Um, the lost art of reading books and resistance in a troubled time. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Why did you feel the need to write it, and what what is it about? 
Well, it's an interesting, I mean, it sort of ties into what we've been talking about. When I was, uh, before I was book editor, I'm sorry, before I was book critic at the LA Times, I was book editor. I, I edited the book section there um, from 2005 to 2010. And beginning around 2008, it definitely had to do with, um, with the election and sort of my kind of um, obsessive interest in the election. But it, and it also had to do with the fact that I um, had never had high-speed internet until 2008. But the combination of all of those elements and then um, and, and also the sort of going, I don't want to say pressure of running that section. There was certainly pressure in running that section, but it was really fun. But there was a ton of, of communications to field, as you can imagine, right? A ton of, of emails from publishers and publicists and writers and pitches and, you know, meetings with people about, about the section and, and the paper. And what I found was that the combination of all of these things, the sort of, you know, the constantly being on the Internet, checking the election stuff, things were speeding up at that point. It was the very beginning of social media. Blogs were, were uh, in their heyday. And we were thinking, starting, you know, learning to think in terms of digital time rather than print time. It felt like I was so constant. There was such a kind of tumult always. There was so much noise. Um, so many emails to answer, so many uh, meetings to go to, so many assignments to make, so much of this that I found that I was having and I was having enough enormous difficulty being able to like quiet my mind enough to concentrate and read. I would read five pages of something and then I'd be like, oh, I better check my email and see what's going on or what's happening in, in, in you know, what happened in, in, um, in the campaign today or any of those kind of things. And I started observe, and it, it, it was upsetting to me because as I has always been the kind of lens through which I make sense of, of the world, my place within the world. Um, so I started thinking about what this meant. Also, I was editing a book section, and it felt like you know almost professional malpractice to be <laughs> the editor of a book review section and not actually be able to finish a book. Oh. Um, I had a really a a excellent editor um, there at the LA Times who worked on the book review staff who edited my stuff an editor named Orly Lowe, who was a really magnificent, magnificent editor. And I was talking to her about this, and she said, you should write an essay about that. And I said, how can I possibly write an essay about that? It'd be like publicly resigning from my job. <laughs> and she said, no, I think that if, if it's happening to you, who does this for a living, it's probably happening to a lot of other readers as well. This is also the beginning of e-books, and kind of, as I said, the kind of transition to, um, to digital. And you know, it's probably happening to other readers as well, and they might get find it reassuring to hear that it's that they're not alone. So I, and with you know, with Orly as my editor, I first spent um, a month or so working on an essay for the LA Times about this. And the essay was called "The Lost Art of Reading," that came out in uh, summer of, of 2009. And it was, and she was right. I mean, I got more response to that piece than almost any piece I ever published in in the newspaper, and most almost all of it was. Thank you. I feel the same. I got that from like from writers. I got that from readers. I got that from professors. I got that from all sorts of people. And so um, the, there's a press, uh, the press that ended up publishing the book, Foxwatch Books, which is in Seattle. Um, their editor and publisher contact Gary Luke and said, "I, you know, I'm interested in this piece. Do you? Is there anything? I'd be interested. In, uh, are you interested in expanding it into a book?" And I, you know, I thought at first I said, I don't know that I am. I, I think I've said everything I need to say about this. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought there's a book I really love um, by a writer named Lynn Sharon Schwartz called Ruined by Reading. And it's sort of a memoir of her reading life. And I always had kind of wanted to write one of those. And so the more I thought about it, the more I thought, 
that it could be a kind of hybrid book that could have, and I like hybrid books, so that began to be really interesting to me. It could have a kind of element of a reader's memoir to it, while also having uh, a series of kind of reflections on, um, on, on kind of where we were in the culture at that point and what it meant that we were making this transition. People were talking about how books were going to be gone, how reading was dying. I didn't believe any of that was true. But then, of course, there was my own difficulty in reading. And then in the middle of it, my son, who is not a reader uh, by any stretch, but who was in ninth grade at the time, was assigned to read The Great Gatsby. And he was having a lot of trouble, not with Gatsby itself, but his English teacher had asked them to do annotations. And he was he just, you know, he kept saying to me, like, I just want to read the book. I, you know, I keep having to pull out of the book to take these notes. So I sort of without, you know, I said to him, I'll read it with you. And he was like, no, 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 no don't do that. So I started reading Gatsby with him. And then that became, you know, my reading of Gatsby and his resistance <laughs> at to having his father be like, let's talk about Gatsby, uh, became a kind of part of the narrative driver that became a narrative driver for the book. So all of a sudden, there were all of these sort of um, elements in play. And that's always what I like about writing. That's how I know a project's working. If I start with one thing in mind, that all of a sudden, I realize there's this and this and this and this that all can kind of be brought in. And, all, and, and, and at that point, I'm dealing with a much bigger, more complicated idea than I thought I had. That's, how I, I, that, that's where I get really interested. And so that's what ended up happening. And I, I ended up you know, writing that book and publishing it in 2010. And then in two, at the end of the book, I made a, there's a line about uh, reading as a kind of quiet resistance or quiet form of resistance, a way of pulling back from the kind of, um, the kind of flash of the culture. Post-2016, post the presidential election, um, the publisher contacted me and said, do you want to update the book and do a second edition? And so we ended up going back and forth about that and deciding to do it and connecting that question of reading and a kind of the, the sort of critical thinking of reading um, as a kind of resistance factor in a culture that had seemed to uh, that seemed to be going off the rails, and particularly in terms of kind of critical analysis or um, mm. the ability to hold a, a cohesive or coherent narrative in one's head. So then we so that was where the second edition came from. Excellent, excellent. Thank you. And uh, yeah, that that. Uh, that was de- definitely necessary and needed, and, and uh, hopefully now, given um, I, I would like to think we're in a new era uh, politically, uh, to a certain extent, uh, that uh, maybe critical thinking will be uh, cherished and, and uh, uh, exercised a bit more. Uh, but your I book, like I would like to think that too. Yeah, let's hope. Now the pandemic. Has it helped then, you know, would you say, with reading, do, do you think? I mean, I can only speak really from my own perspective. And for me, it's been a mixed bag. For the very, in, the, in the very, you know, the first few months of the pandemic, it was reading was really, really difficult. I, I thought concentrating on pretty much anything was really difficult because the, you know, the, surf, the, few, the outside circumstances were so uncertain and so constantly changing and so um, dangerous that I, at least for me, my imaginative sensibilities were caught up in what is it going to, what does it mean to survive? What, what is, what is it going to be that what is it we're surviving into if in fact we survive? Um, and it took a while for it to settle for me, probably until middle of the summer. And partly that had to do with the fact that, you know, I think we, you know, I just got accustomed a little bit to what 
this pandemic life was like. Um, also, towards the end of the summer, cases in Los Angeles were on the decline, so it felt, you know, we, there was some guarded, I don't want to say optimism exactly, but there was, it was, didn't feel as hopeless. So I was able to concentrate on um, on other on other things, and so I, you know, in the early part of the pandemic, I wasn't reading much, or if I was, I was reading sort of small essays and things like that, mostly about people's experiences in the pandemic. I wasn't writing all that much either, <clears throat> except for those same kinds of pieces. And then, in you know, mid late summer, like July or thereabouts, I started both um, reading more and really kind of immersing in reading more just because it was great to be pulled out and put into a different world among other things. Um, I don't want to minimize <clears throat> the value, the escapist value of reading, but I also began writing more and writing more, um, writing more comprehensively or writing more, I, I don't want to say more deeply, but writing longer things and writing more um, consistently, I guess is how I would put it. And, um, and that has continued um, through where, wherever, I mean, wherever we are now, who knows right now, as I say, right now, knock on wood, things look um, okay in, in Los Angeles, but you know, it's a fluid situation. It surely is no doubt variants and all. Um, now let's talk a little bit about someone who lives in the same state as you or lived in the same state as you passed recently, one of the greats, beat poet Lawrence Farlinghetti. Uh, did you ever cross paths with him? Did you go to his bookstore, for example, up in San Francisco? Uh, what do you think of his passing? I um, I did. I mean, I, I knew Lawrence. I didn't know him well, but I knew him uh, a bit. He, um, City Lights published my second book, uh, Another City, and, um, and I had met him i've met him a number of times over the years and talked to him in various you know um, at various events or various social gatherings and things like that um and you know and and and, and when i and i did live in san francisco in a long time i lived in san francisco uh in 1980 and then went back east and went to school and 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 then came back to california about 11 years later but when i lived in san francisco i went to city lights all the time and it's always been a touchstone place for me whenever i'm in the city i even if i'm in the city for an afternoon i always make a little bit of time to just walk through the bookstore because it's a it's a real um it's a real kind of home in, in that sense, I think that, you know, what he did that, you know, he taught me a lot in, I mean, as an, not in, in direct uh, teaching, but as an example, um, you know, his sense that a writer could be a writer. I mean, you know, remember he published, ended up publishing something like 50 books in the course of his lifetime and also was a painter and, and um, an artist. Uh, but the idea that a writer could be a writer and could devote oneself to that writerly practice but could also be a champion for other writers, a champion for literary community, an editor, um, could, could, could create a, a kind of aesthetic or a vision that was bigger than, one, than just one's own, was deeply, deeply influential to me. And I think is one of the, you know, what he's one of, or his example, I should say, is one of the reasons that I have done a lot of the work that I've done. I think a lot of my work as an editor, um, a lot of my work as a teacher, a lot of my work um, with, you know, organizations like Penn in terms of kind of literary, developing literary community or encouraging literary community. Um, I think he, you know, it, it, the, its roots are in Ferlinghetti's example. He was the first, um, the first person I knew of who could, who did all those things and who was committed to doing all of those things and was committed to writing as a public act. And I think also he was a kind of moral 
example or a moral avatar in a certain sense too, uh, because he always held the line. He, you know, I mean, he was the one who said, um, you know, he said he, he, he never applied for an NEA grant as an example, because as he said, you know, to collaborate with a corrupt society makes you, or a corrupt government makes you complicit. Um, and, you know, I don't know that I, I, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily go that far. I've certainly applied for an, for an NEA grant, but I love the fact that he was willing to stand up for it and that it wasn't just kind of bluster when he was on the outside and he was able to, when he, he could have been an insider, he, you know, he, he didn't turn his back on, on that. I thought that his integrity um, particularly around, I mean, his integrity as, a, as an artist, but also his integrity around the question of culture was a really important, um, I mean, it was really important. And for me, it was really important because it taught me something about how to carry myself. And I'm, he always, I will always be grateful to him for that. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, David. Talking to David Eulen here on Troubadours and Rock On Tours. And, um, uh, you know, we're almost there. You know, the, the conversation goes so quickly. I, I want to give you an opportunity to, to maybe reflect a bit on where you think um, publishing is going. What's some tr- what are some of the hopeful or maybe not so hopeful trends you're seeing? And also, what, what's, uh, what's coming up for you? What kind of projects are you working on? Well, I mean, I'll, 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 I'll start with the latter question because then I can build to the, I can, we can talk about the other, it's, in my own, I don't, I don't, I rarely talk about, I almost never talk about work in progress. So what I will say is, you know, my current project, I'm currently editing a literary journal out of, um, out of USC called Airlight. We're just, uh, we are, it, it's a, it's a hybrid of a, it's a quarterly, but it's a digital quarterly. So we, we, we set up issues and announce issues at the beginning of the quarter and then we roll out a couple of pieces a week over the course of the three months. We're just about done uh, with our second issue. Um, and so that has been a blast. I've always loved, as a, you know, as I've always loved editing as a kind of um, creative act, the art of editing. And again, it's a, it, I, I, it's a way for that kind of community that I was talking about, that kind of commitment to other writers to, um, to exist, to create a space where artists and writers can do the work that they want to do without commercial pressure, without, um, you know, without, without even, um, our expectation, our, our entire aesthetic in that magazine is, you know, bring us, bring us the work you want to bring us. If it doesn't work for us, we won't use it, but don't there, don't feel like you have to tailor anything for us. We want to see what you want to bring us. So that's been really fun. We've been doing that. We launched in, um, in October. And so that's an ongoing project. I also have just finished, um, a, a, a draft of a new book, which is all I'll, that, um, which needs some revision, but it seems to be hanging together okay. So that you never know. Um, I tend to write without. Um, I tend to write and kind of edit a little bit as I go along, but I, I, I like to get the draft done and then do the revision. So it's always a challenging moment or a kind of trepidatious old draft for the first time. So I've just had that. Um, I've just had that experience. As far as publishing, I think that we are in a really interesting and potentially transformative moment in publishing. Uh, as we're seeing, I mean, I think, you know, in terms of the kind of the, the voices that are, um, are, are, I don't want to say that are emerging, they've always been there, but finally publishing or, or certain, you know, main, mainstream publishing is paying attention. Um, in terms of the voices that are getting exposure, in terms of the narratives that are getting exposure, in terms of the kind of broad sort of range of, of styles and, and forms and, um, in, in, you know, and, and, and artists, 
I think it's an incredibly exciting time. I think it's really, you know, one of the things that interests me as a writer and as a reader and as an editor, which I think we're seeing now is a, is a time of kind of genre blurring and sort of stepping outside of the lines a little bit, which I think is really important for literature to continue to develop and grow. I think we are finally perhaps starting to move towards some kind of equity in terms of who has access or who gets that. Oh, we're not there yet. We're not even close, but we're finally talking about it in terms of, um, in terms of, of, of race, in terms of orientation, in terms of, of cultural background, all of it. I think we're in a territory where the landscape of literature in general and American literature particularly feels wide open and kind of incredibly explosive in a very, very exciting way. I see books all the time where that, you know, I mean, I've got, I've got, I'm looking at a stack of books right now that's, um, you know, about three feet tall that uh, are all books that I would, you know, I, that I, that I are out or coming out in the next uh, couple of months that I, you know, I want to read. So I feel like we are, re um, we're an amazing, we're in a moment of amazing potential um, for literature. Um, and I am really eager to kind of see how it develops. Excellent. Very exciting. David, Yulin, book critic, writer, professor at USC, among other things. I have to say, I've read uh, a number of your pieces. I, I read uh, a lot of the magazines that you write for, and I really appreciate your work, sir, and I appreciate you spending some time with us here on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. All the best. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I appreciate your attention to the work, and, and, um, and I appreciate the interview. Take care. You too.
the shut-in's bitter cousin Mary stops by. My bitter cousin Mary stopped by the other day to inquire about my mother, who now lives in Skagway, Alaska, with her lover Ronald, a shaman. Mary lives next door, but we rarely see or speak to one another. How's Aunt Evelyn? Mary asked, leaning against the doorway and peeking into the living room. Mary is an inveterate peeker. Always peeking, that's Mary. I shifted my body to obstruct her view. Oh, you know Evelyn, Mary. From the letters and cards, she seems to be doing well. She's in love, huh? Is the mailman sharing the contents of the postcards with Mary, I wonder? I didn't answer. How about you? How are you doing? I can count on one hand the number of times Mary asked me that. I leaned toward her a little, and she leaned back a little. I caught a faint whiff of a stiff, bloody Mary. It was mid-morning. She must have just had her breakfast. Mary and her bloody Marys. I'm doing as well as can be expected, I said. Miss her? Sure. <clears throat> Don't you miss your mother? My mother's dead, Mary replied. And mine's in Alaska. Mary chortled, and I chortled back. And for an instant we bonded in a way we hadn't since we were children. I loved Mary's mother, Big Mary. When she was young, Bitter Mary was Little Mary, always overshadowed and engulfed by Big Mary. Her mother was a big woman with a big personality, a hoot. Ruddy, loud, gregarious, funny, she brightened every room she entered, as they say, surely lying, in so many obituaries. She didn't brighten Mary's room, however. With her daughter, her only child, she was a different Big Mary, snappish, sometimes cruel, sometimes cold, often critical, of Little Mary's dress, Little Mary's refrigerator art, Little Mary's posture. Never enough, never the best, as Big Mary regularly noted in her deep cigarette and whiskey-roughened voice. To me, Big Mary was warm and kind, much, much warmer than my mother, her late husband's sister. And at the corner bar, her social club, Big Mary shined, sharing dirty jokes with old Joe, the bartender, and entertaining the regulars from the neighborhood. Little Mary and little me would come in through the ladies' entrance and sit unobtrusively in the corner with our Shirley Temples and our cheese nips and listen to Big Mary cracking wise about the events of the day and doing her impersonations of Paul Lind and Phyllis Diller. She went down Manhattan after Manhattan, smoke Kent after Kent, and tuck into a plate of ham and potatoes made especially for her by old Joe. Big Mary would hold court on her bar stool and occasionally bring us children into the conversation. Your father, she would say to little Mary, was a weak man and none too bright even considering the men in this family, a pathetic lot. Little Mary's eyes welled at the thought of her maligned father, and Big Mel Mary felt a rare twinge of regret. 
Ah, she sighed, torn between sympathy for her sensitive daughter and disgust for all men. She died in her early fifties, the willing victim of too much ham and too many Manhattans. So Big Mary died, and Little Mary became simply Mary, and then, to me, Bitter Mary. Mary did a brief stint at a local community college, got a job as a bank teller, and never left the bank. She was an institution at her little window, known for her accuracy and speed, if not her friendliness. She had a series of suitors of dubious character and unsettled sexuality. When one of those suitors made the lame request, Can we still be friends? Mary answered with an emphatic no. And no ultimately became her byword. No to him, no to her, no to this, no to that. No, no, no. Big Mary said yes. Yes to another Manhattan. Yes to another cigarette. Yes to another helping of ham and cabbage. And now and then, yes to the barfly leering at her from the jukebox. As my bitter cousin Mary stood on my porch, I tried to discern Big Mary in her features, but I couldn't see the mother in the daughter. Buried, perhaps, under all those years of loneliness, all those days at her little window, all those disappointing men. When she realized she wasn't getting any juicy intel about me, from me about my own problematic and wayfaring mother, Mary forced a smile and headed back to her house. I thought of calling out to her, but, as always, refrained. Thank you.
hoping that you come back to win. I'm walking, yes indeed, I'm talking about you and me. Place. The smell of late March, early April toward May and June, the echo of tobacco juice spit and off the inside copper of an old dented spittoon, as I sit on the porch of Migsy and Mang's place, waiting for my bundle of newspapers to arrive, to be folded in the special way that I learned, and arranged in my bag over my shoulder, off the porch, on to the sidewalks, then thrown on the stoops of my neighborhood all those years ago. Jets are in the boxes, and the clowns have all gone to bed. You can hear happiness staggering on down the street, footprints dressed in red, and the wind whispers very. of yesterday's life Somewhere a queen is weeping Somewhere a king has no wife And the wind it cries very Mary 
And there you have it, episode 414 of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, David Eulen, our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis, and these musical artists, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, The Beatles, Dr. Lonnie Smith and Iggy Pop, Modu Maktor, The Rebirth Brass Band, Jimi Hendrix, Brantford Marsalis, and Terrence Blanchard too. And of course, I'd like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and do our best with this time. Take care.